Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios on a glorious early fall day, the 19th of September, 2022, calling as ever from the enlightened space coast of Florida, the last free state in America. Joining me in the studios today uh, from Illinois is Bruce DeBenici, who is a lawyer uh, with an emerging practice in cybersecurity and cyber insurance and cyber policy. Bruce, did I get your name right? Did I get your title right? Do I did I convey what you do? <laughs> you did everything right, which is the least of what I would expect from you. That is excellent. And off we go. So what what brings you to messy times on such a glorious day with the myriad other things you could be doing with your day? Uh, how have you decided to grace us with your presence? What's on your mind? So we're going to discuss <clears throat> cyber coverage today <clears throat> as it relates to the small and medium business market. But but we're going to get astray a little bit from the rather dry, pedantic legal aspects of it. But we're going to talk about some interesting so, uh, political aspects of it. And just to dive right in, all right. The, 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 what I find interesting that we're going to discuss today is the way that the private market, predominantly led by insurance carriers, has, has created a... a if you will, a regime that is going to have a strong impact on how small, medium businesses interact with cyber coverage. And, and I won't call it a regulatory scheme, but, but in effect, it's going to be similar to that, that um, as SMBs um, wish to participate in the market, especially if they want to move up the ladder of the scale of the market, they're going to find that they have to follow certain protocol that's going to be enforced by carriers, but also by other private sector parties some of whom are reaching out to the carriers in the first instance for this, but that this is going to be an example of where the private market can have a, what I think is a constructive, positive regulatory effect without the need for the federal bureaucracy. What? So, well, you had me at no need for federal bureaucracy, so I'm in love with that statement. <laughs> but let's back up a little bit. My audience, uh, while, while very intelligent, uh, usually appreciate short declarative sentences. So when you're talking about cyber coverage, you mean insurance policies that a company could buy. So if something happens to them in a cyber attack, they, in theory, will get a check from their insurance co uh, company. And that company is what you're referring to as a carrier. Have I yes. translated well for my audience? Okay, carry on. And, you and let's stay focused on the lack of the feds, but go ahead. <laughs> yes. So so here's what's going on. Um, today, if you were to canvas smaller businesses and some medium businesses, you'd see a, a fairly marked sort of um, lack of interest um, in, in dealing with the cyber coverage, a deprioritization of it. But what is about to happen from my sensibility is uh, for the coverage year 2023, a lot of these business enterprises are going to start receiving some stimuli, if you will, from the market to say, okay, um, if you want to do business with us, we're going to replicate, if you will, SIPRs. We're going to look at your supplier resiliency index, and we're going to see where you stand on this. And, and part of that is going to be, we need to see what coverage you have for cyber events, and in particular, what coverage you have that in the insurance industry is known as third-party coverage. And that is to say that the larger market player looks at the smaller market player and says, if you want to do business with us, if you want to ship goods to us, sell goods to us, if you want to be in electronic communication with us, we need to have some protections. And one of those protections is we need to know that you, the smaller carrier, the smaller player, 
you've got insurance coverage that will provide me, the larger player, with money to be compensated in case you, the smaller player, are at fault for some kind of a cyber event that causes me, the larger player, damage for that. Wow. And well, hold, hold on. That's, that's fascinating in and of itself. <laughs> I want to just circle back for a second because for a man who's been around the world and thinks that I've got a pretty good grip on all the varieties of fun to be had, you brought up a new one that I've never heard of, which is the ah. Supplier Resiliency Index, which sounds like just a jam-packing party. <laughs> Tell me all about the Supplier Resiliency Index and how one gets admitted to this august august party. So, so I, I, a lot of this is, is my telescope looking forward in the very near future, but it's also based on empirical information that people have been sharing with me. So, so uh, the the larger player is being told by its insurance carrier, you need to reach out to your vendors, right, and we'll call it your sub vendors. Let's preemptively <laughs> spread the risk around as far as possible. So, if I'm AIG, say, who is notorious for loving to pay out claims. I could say to my big client, well, you nuts? It was like a car crash. You should have had the seven of your OEMs who are sending you stuff. They shouldn't be insured. Why am I covering this? So basically, it's a preemptive uh, ability to get a, a customer to basically have what would be deductible coverage. Did, yes. Well said. Well said. I told no. you it was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's, so here's where it isn't. We're not even to the fun part yet. Woo! So all right. So the, okay. Let me, let me buckle in. Go ahead. <laughs> so the smaller player begins once they get over the initial sort of um, rejection and shock. Right. They say, "Okay, all right. I, I, I am aware that there's something called cyber insurance coverage. I wasn't that interested. I looked at it a little bit. We collectively decided in the C-suite we weren't going to look at it this year. Right. All right. Enough already. I'll contact the broker. The broker says, "Fine. Sure." I have people who sell that product. I'm going to send you five different offerings. And, right. and the, the smaller player says, well, you know, that's just great. Smaller player gets five different offerings. And, and the first thing you notice is are two important dynamics. First is some of those applications are 10 to 20 pages long. Oh, of course they are. Right. And, and they contain what lawyers like to call representations and warranties. And the other that he notices is that those five policies bear some points of similarity with each other in terms of language and definitions and some points of dissimilarity. Another way of saying it, they are not standardized. So he scratches his head and says, how am I supposed to compare these policies? Why aren't they standardized? I don't know. What, why isn't warmer in the winter? It just, it, it, it hasn't been standardized yet. So... He starts standardization to only benefits the consumer, does not benefit the insurance company. They've got no desire to standardize policies. Why make those exclusions perfectly clear? Yeah, really? yeah God, no, heck no. That's terrifying. We it, we learned that watching Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner <laughs> 50 years ago when the Acme Rockets malfunctioned and he finally read the fine print. <laughs> and by the way, I think that statute of limitations may still be live, but that's an uncertain issue. <laughs> Uh, a jaded party might say that the legal profession doesn't want the standardization either, but that oh. would be a sardonic observation. No. <laughs> Diminish the rate of billable hours? Get out of town, counselor. You're just telling fantasy tales now. <laughs> Vampires need virgins. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs>
so so the so the uh, what happens is the owner of the smaller player he calls up Chris and IT. He says, "Come on here, fill this out." <laughs> Chris and IT is a smart guy. He says, uh, "This is a hot potato." Yeah, I'm not I'll this. I'll work with a handful of people, not right. doing it on my own. Put my name on this. No way. <laughs> yeah. And so they assemble a team and they start going through it. And they find that a meaty portion of this long application is tell us all about your existing cyber hygiene protocol and how you've been implementing it and testing it and send us your logs. Well, this is another meeting of, of the crisis team. And, they, and they, the, the, you know, at this point, they also consider rejecting the business from the larger market player, right. rejecting the idea. Cooler heads prevail and they say, no, we have to slog our way through this. They come to understand these are legally binding reps of warranties. And, and it, while the insurance companies have a legitimate rationale for requiring these, which we'll get to in a minute, nonetheless, they realize that this is very dicey. And, and it's a legal proposition. You and I know it's a legal proposition. They didn't really think of it as a legal proposition. This is a legally binding and legally complex document. And I don't want to rock your world here, but the parties most obvious to benefit from this are the members of my profession. <laughs> so I've yet to find an area <laughs> of commercial dispute in which the lawyers are not primarily the winners. <laughs> if I think of one, I'll share that with you. Yes. <laughs> so I admire you, Counselor for the guild maintaining its supremacy. Just, I want to break you I want to break you very quickly for those of us who've lived on the practical side of this. And I did a huge amount of work a few years ago around uh, improving actuarial definitions of cyber risk. And I found out that almost nobody in the whole ecosystem had any interest whatsoever in quantifying things objectively. Zip, zero, none. No one did. Um, and the, the, the most interesting part I found was uh, everyone in the ecosystem wants as much information as they can get from the other party and wants to provide as little information as they can the other way. And the, 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 the biggest driver that I initially saw about cyber coverage was some, you know, general counsel went off to, you know, a continuing education seminar, not for the golf, I'm sure, but went, you know, had to be in Boca during January with the lawyers in Minnesota, of course, never the other way around. Uh, and then they heard in a seminar that good software companies require their vendors to have, you know, some cyber coverage or something. Everyone, great. And that became a moneymaker for the insurance companies because they would basically, you know, they, the broker would call and they would just quote the lowest price possible, which of course covered nothing, but it said $5 million policy, right? And they could say, I got a thing for $5 million. And now can I please sell you my software? And the market really began that way with no one ever intending to ever make a claim, ever intending to pay out purely as an extrinsic factor. Um, how much has things evolved since then, or is that pretty much still the main driver? Well, that's a good platform for the next point I was gonna go into, that in the very recent past, uh, carriers sat down and realized that their underwriting had been flawed, to be mm. very polite, and that the losses were far in excess of what they expected. So this is not an editorial, in turn, they said, okay, we have to raise our underwriting standards and we have to raise the premiums. So the small market player, didn't he, he didn't get the sort of in a directory when it was a three-page application in the recent past. He just, he accelerated to, to the varsity league 
from just walking into high school the right. day before. And you're, done. you're playing in the game. What? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're playing in the game, and, and the name of the other team is Ohio State University. It's third and six. You get the ball. That's right. <laughs> Here's some steroids. Go. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> so, so my slot, which I'm just going to discuss briefly, is to sit down with a smaller market player and say, okay, um, time is not working in your favor. We're, we're going to work collaboratively. Maybe we've got two outside vendors, one or two. We're going to put together a protocol, put together some data, and we're going to try to get this coverage in uh, approved for you in time for the 2023 calendar year. But of course, ways that the clock is not helpful here is it's going to take some time internally to really take ownership of what of what I just spoke. That's not going to happen automatically. And once you submit the application of the carrier, they need time to underwrite. How long is that going to take? I'm shrugging my shoulders. Right. And and so in the meantime, there's a possibility that you you lost your opportunity to do business with Messina Enterprises. Absolutely. I demand all and complete coverage of, of my deductibles before I talk to anybody. I mean, yes. you filled out the paperwork for this show in like a week. I was very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, called, I, I, I brought my Harvard lawyer friend in, and, we, and that's what we did over the weekend. But that's for another. <laughs> Sorry. Thank heavens. Oh, no wonder why there's so many misspellings. Oh, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so that's that's interesting. They're, they're already facing an opportunity cost for dealing with potentially missing business. Um, they're potentially filling out a document that is wildly uh, detailed in potentially ways that are kind of irrelevant, but are developed from a cover, cover your ass standpoint from the insurer who wants everything possible. And we had a very briefly, we have a set of uh, cybersecurity uh, policies and procedures for a massive logistics company, you know, operations like 90 countries. And um, they, were, they were talking about the fact that they'd done a lot of cyber training and everyone had clicked through the thing and all the rest of it. And I suggested, and this was oddly shot down by the board of directors with a, with a strong opinion from HR, that we get those, those fun little dog training shot collars and put them on everybody and, and send them test spam emails. Like if you click on the link that says, his Royal Highness of Nigeria has got a billion dollars for you. You just need to tell him your name. If you click that link, you get a little, sadly, they went no. But I thought it was a really good way to reduce the cyber exposure. What do you know, <laughs> I, I, to take your point, the beginning of Ghostbusters as a training film uh, prototype. Why not? It, it got the message across. Didn't exactly. It? it worked. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's an excellent, excellent. Yeah, uh, what was his name, Professor? Oh, um, there was Bankman, Bankman, and, <laughs> Bankman. <laughs> and all of the students got shocked except for the pretty girls. Except <laughs> for the pretty girls. <laughs> Absolutely brilliant. Can you imagine if that came out today that the Columbia <laughs> University student union would scream "Me too" and bellow about inherent sexism and paranormalism and all the rest of it? Anyway, we're getting sidetracked. So, yeah, they would trade in front of the screen, but yes, we're getting sidetracked. Yeah. Away from Dr. Beckman and his very attractive psycho, uh, uh, psychologically capable uh, uh, subjects. So what, what the end upshot of all this is, I guess, from a practical standpoint, because insurance makes everybody cry. Uh, well, what are the statistics on if a claim happens, right? We all know that, you know, well, those of us pay attention, the target hack 
which ended up, you know, bleeding retail information and credit cards out to the world, came through one of their vendors who works on the HVAC system, right? So clever for the hackers, good job finding a way in, right? But that is clearly the template that big company gets from his law firm saying, look at Target. They did everything right. Didn't occur to them to check the thermostat system for a vulnerability that would eventually get back to HR's computers. So, you know, is there empirical data or other empirical data now that support this idea that the ecosystem as a whole is better protected? Or is this just one more way for insurance companies to wring cash out of scared small companies? We're in transition, and I'm going to enrich that in connection with your comment. I, I, and I, this is my editorial. When I look at the sort of collective voice to small, medium businesses about cybersecurity, and this includes our dear friend CISA, I see what I consider a, a sort of a half-rain delivery of information. I, my perception is that there's a collective sensibility um, a little bit like cross-examining uh, Jack Nicholson on the witness stand, that you don't want to deliver information that is too accurate because that's too frightening for the public. And, and I guess that the sensibility is that you don't want <clears throat> people to believe, well, I can't achieve perfection, therefore there's no point in trying. Now, the lawyer response is, we're not pursuing perfection if I'm trying to defend somebody proactively from uh, a situation in court, I tell them we're pursuing best practices. Right. And when you're pursuing best practices, I, it, I think it's, it's material and appropriate to say, this is how scary the landscape truly is. This is how the, the multitude of ways you could get hacked. Because if you, and, and we're not gonna do it together, it will make your eyes glaze over. If we went through 20 or 30 sort of delivery of, of cybersecurity skills, you'll see that they all follow pretty much the same prototype. Here's my favorite. We think it's a good idea to use multi-factor authentication. Little mention of SIM swapping. Right. I, I, little mention of physical keys. Yeah. Terrifying. I, I was actually in a meeting with someone about six months ago. We were working on an NFT structure. Uh, so they were very kind of crypto native. All the rest of it. Got a panicked phone call from his partner. Who, and this is, I just... I shook my head. Um, you know, if the stakes are high enough, criminals will pay anything for the setup, right? Ocean's Eleven teaches us nothing, except if, it, if the if the pile of money is big enough, the setup is also worth investing in, right? It's a business like any other. Yes. So this guy was is is renowned, you know, crypto, you know, billionaire, whatever has been, you know, was lucky enough, smart enough to buy you know, eighty thousand Bitcoin when they were nine cents, whatever, right? Um, doesn't matter. The fact is, um, he's got a very large, in nominal terms, sum of money, quote unquote, um, on the very secure, you know, 98 factor, you know, authentication, bling, bling, bling on his phone, the genius. Well, criminals know how to find people who work at phone companies and either bribe or threaten them. And someone, uh, duplicated his SIM card and drained like $400 million out of his life in like a minute. Gone. Mm. And he picked up the phone, and I happened to be you know, there in the meeting when this, he called this other guy who was who was telling him this story, and like, like what can I do about this? And he's just like, what do you mean, what do you do about it? It's like, it's like highway robbery. They just took your cash and left. What do you mean? First off, 
they're sitting quietly somewhere outside of Moscow, you know, toasting your your good health right now. But second, it's gone, brother. I mean, call the FBI. I don't know what to tell you. Call your carrier. Maybe you can sue them. So it's it's a nightmare out there. Anything you hold as cash can be taken from you. Can be taken from you. So here, I, I you see me looking at my screen. There was some. So, ah. So here's the other topic, which I know will resonate for you. The idea that's been floated recently of the United States providing some kind of sort of safety net cyber coverage. And, and well, that was the, that's pretty close to my reaction. I see that as offering a pass to players that just don't want to go through the effort and incur the cost of proper cyber hygiene. I think it's a mistake. It's a huge mistake, and here's the main, the main, the, here's my opinion on, on the main reason. This is this is a fact based, highly informed opinion. What what our what our listeners have come to refer to, refer to as enlightenment. So there are two kinds of companies, right? Those have been hacked, and those who, who don't know they've been hacked. Um, first off, everyone should, should rest easy because both Moscow and Beijing have complete copies of all of your personal information. And the second point is you're not that interesting, so don't worry about it. Um, when I when I tell people about um, the OPM breach, when I ask people, said, "Tell me, what do you think about the OPM breach?" Right, nine hundred and ninety nine out of a thousand people look at me blankly. Most of them haven't heard of it. Right, when I tell them it was in terms of national security, forty times worse than Pearl Harbor, they just look at me like I'm really insane. Like, how did I miss that? Right, was that was is that some code word for September eleventh? Like, how did I miss that? Right, and so. The power of cyber data and the power of network economy is that it's invisible. So people, until it happens to you, until you try to pay for something with your credit card and you're told it's declined and you go to your bank and your money's gone, until it happens to you and it's made concrete, it's all theoretical. Yes. And the second point being that when we deal with clients and how I deal with our business, it's everything's on a continuum from convenience to security. I can make anything secure. You can't get to it. You can't use it, but I can make it secure, right? Or I can take everything and put it up on the web with no passwords and advertise it. That's convenient too, right? Somewhere along that sliding scale is where we all fit. And from our adversary's perspective, remember this great chat uh, with a retiring admiral who's head of naval uh, operations for cybersecurity, cyber command, and he had dealt with this Chinese counterpart who looked at him and said, well, if you Americans really valued this stuff, you wouldn't leave it on the Internet. Of course, yes. the American naive perspective is, well, we didn't leave it on the Internet. It's behind password protection. Like, look, with, with the amount of money they have and the people they have and the brute force computing they have, if, you, if it's on the Internet, password protected or not, it's on the Internet. So if you really care, air gap it. The Chinese government does not put their most valuable information on the internet in any way, shape, or form. Is that inconvenient? Sure. Is it safer? You betcha. Yes. So companies have to make that decision along that continuum of, well, if none of it's touching the network, they can't steal it from me without breaking in physically to the building, which they don't want to do if they're a teenage kid sitting, you know, eating Cheetos in Lithuania. So that's better. But uh, it's also really impossible for me to get stuff done. So how do you counsel your clients like sort of in that vein or do you about how much do you value this stuff? You really value it. Take it off the network. 
So my advice is that you, you segment your data and, and the data that is, that let's use the, the recipe for Coca-Cola, you know, that's, that's obviously at, at the pinnacle, but some of the other, it, it, it's a matter of resource allocation, because if you're not Boeing or Apple with all the money in the world, you, you have to go for second best. Second best is you stratify. Right. And, and, you know, I, I, to your, to your point, uh, I'll share an interesting story recently. I've been, I'm very good friends with someone who's been a title agent for 40 years. I won't tell you which title company, um, but it's one you've heard of. And we are talking about <clears throat> a different lawyer told me the story. Basically, money had gotten mis, miswired to the wrong party, and the lawyer was seeking he would sue the bank. And I talked with somebody who was representing the lawyer said, you know, the lawyer's got some real problems here. So the title agent and I are talking about that in the abstract. Here's why I bring this up. To paraphrase what the title agent said, you know, we explain to people what they have to go through for these wire transfer instructions because they, they being um, the Kevin Smiths in Chechnya eating Cheetos in the basement, they, they are learning how to link in to know when the closings are going to occur so they know when to send the intercepting emails. And my immediate thought was, okay, we should have the general counsel for the title company on the phone for me to tell the general counsel for the title company, clearly you have a persistent leak in your system. If this is happening repeatedly, that Kevin Smith from Chechnya always knows when your closings are coming up and knows when to send in the email, this is not a weakness on behalf of the lawyers handling the buyer or the seller. This right. is this is you've got people in the system. Yeah. He didn't want to hear that. Oh, and, and I and you know to your point, I, I go back to um, here. If 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 you and I are opposing counsel on a fifteen million dollar transaction and there's a lender to pay, I think I'm going to hire a trusted paralegal mate who's bonded, and she's going to go. She's going to go to a physical office of Chase Bank, pick up a letter, they copy, they countersign, they, they take photographs, yep. and she said, bring me a letter, and that's the wire instructions. I don't care that it's 1962. Yep. Oh, absolutely. It works, works perfectly. The um, It was funny, as you were talking about that, that system, I worked with, um, I worked with a group that had Good reason for doing this, but the upshot of it was the, the system that worked is that all they had to do was intercept corporate communications. Then it was just a, st a statistical exercise. If they could get, say, three days worth of corporate emails, right, that was no, from a company that had no website, no nothing, they could discern from the structure of emails, the tone of address, the degree to which someone's tone was deferential versus commanding, mm. with like some 98% accuracy, they could map out the entire org structure just based on those email communications. With no titles in the emails, no nothing. They would find out that Sally Johnson is the CEO and Bob, you know, Janelli is the general counsel and whatever. And with that information... Of course, they could then send those types of emails and done correctly, insanely powerful and impactful, right? We all we all learned that you could spoof email addresses. It looks like it's coming sure. to you, right? Um, so we, you, I like that you talk about that, sending the person physically. 
everything in any company I'm in dealing with that requires money transferring, there are at least three person-to-person -person interactions, whether over the phone, over video, better, in person, even better, before anything goes anywhere. Because you can't trust email anymore at all. Your no. text can be hacked <laughs> and mimicked and spoofed. And they only, it's much like guards in a prison have to be right 100% of the time. And the prisoners yeah, have to be right, right once, right? I We had it happen in one company I'm involved with. Everyone's smart. Everyone's trained. Everyone knows what they're doing, right? And out of nowhere, CFO gets an email, quote, unquote, from the CEO saying, and of course, he's traveling. So whoever's doing this knows he's traveling. He, they can know he's traveling as simple as watching him on LinkedIn, attending a conference in another city, right? So they know he's yes. traveling, right? So they will use every little bit of information they can find, open source, figure all that out, and that's when they strike. And sent an email in his in his tone of voice, how he writes, saying, "Forgot, you know, basically, I forgot to tell you this to our left yesterday, but we got this outstanding invoice. They're being real pains in the ass about it. And what really triggered the um, triggered the huh was that it was being sent to a bank in China. Now we do business in China, so that in of itself isn't weird, but it was a bank in a city we don't deal with, right?" And but it, the CFO started it in motion, and then called the bank. And luckily, we have all these processes because the bank called and said, "Are you sure?" <laughs> and luckily, yeah. it was just the start of the process. But that's why we have the process, right? Because yeah. no one's perfect. Everyone's human. Occasionally, wow, it's tired. I got this urgent thing for my boss. Really? Okay, it's weird, but okay. And it wasn't like eighty million dollars; like seventy grand. So. It was like in the reasonable range. It was a lot, but it wasn't like company changing. So, and they're very clever about that. They're really smart about what's the right amount to ask for that makes a yeah. payday for me, but is not likely to trigger. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> yes, right, right. So, so let's let's flip. Let's talk about the war and nation states exclusions. Are oh yeah, that let, renders them all invalid because you can't. Is the, the incumbency is upon you, the violated, to prove that you've been raped not by Boris, the entrepreneur <laughs> hacker, but by the Kremlin, who has told Boris to rape you electronically. If that's so, not too aggressive a metaphor, Counselor. <laughs> it's, well, it's it's very close. So so the what's interesting. So let's back up for your audience. So Lloyd's of London. This only, of course. Here's the lawyer caveat. This only applies to the multitude of insurance carriers that are doing business with Lloyd's of London. So it only Just applies. Just them. No one else. <laughs> Just them. <laughs> so if you're not dealing with Lloyd's, you're good. Okay. You're good. So yes. Thank you for that exclusion. So my <laughs> listeners hint, that means no one. <laughs> so Lloyd's issued a directive. They said, if you're one of us, can we just say affiliates, minions, affiliates? Minions. Chattel um, slaves, whatever. Yes. <laughs> You're one of our serfs. You serfs. <laughs> I can flog you before the wheat harvest. Anyway, God, I missed that. You have to use one of these four provisions. And two of the one of the provisions um, says that we cover war and nation states. So no one's using that, of course. Right. Another one limits the coverage. And then the other two, it's silent. So every court is going to say, of course, that excludes war and nation states. So what's war and nation states? So Lloyds of London hired 
um, a global law firm to write these definitions, which, uh, okay, hold on to your seat, are ambiguous in defining <laughs> what is an... <laughs> so a nation state or a war is kind of like pornography, you know it when you see it? Hey, it, very good. They could have just said, see pornography. See in pornography. And everyone would be like, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you didn't. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> see, I told but, you. The insurance industry is just a basket <laughs> of greased monkeys. Fun, fun, fun. <laughs> yes. So it, it's, it, it, in terms of a metaphor that, that I'm familiar with, it's um, what is a good Grateful Dead improvisational jam is versus a bad Grateful Dead improvisational <laughs> There we go. <laughs> I don't know whether you've come down off the acid yet. <laughs> so it's, wow, it's, wow, that's like a quantum entangled question. It is a quantum entangled question. So here's what happens to the small market player. They pick up the newspaper and maybe they read that the government of uh, Lithuania has been shut down. And and, and the U.S. government thinks that <clears throat> it is a cyber buccaneer or a cyber militia associated with Russia. I'll define that in a minute. So <clears throat> the federal government effectively says, yeah, <clears throat> this hack of Lithuanian government was from players that are associated with the Russian government. If, if there is, and there often is, shrapnel fallout on the private sector because systems are attacked and systems sure. are capillary action. <clears throat> then when the small player calls up the carrier and says, I suffered a million dollar damage and shutdown and everything, the carrier says, oh no, the federal government says that is an act of Russian, my words, agents. Right. Thus, it is an act of a nation state. Thus, we don't have to pay you. The small, the small market player says, I have no clue what you're talking about. Right. I didn't sign that. More importantly, I, I want to circle back very quickly. These cyber buccaneers, do the Russians issue cyber letters of mark to them? So, so yeah, this is, a, you know, we're, we're going back to Sir Francis Drake here. That, um, Good man now, there. Good man. Unfairly besmirched by history, I would say. Yes. Well, he was operating on the imprimatur of a, of a government. So why should it be held liable for that? So actually... Oh. That's kind of what's going on today. Governments are hiring <clears throat> cyber thugs. I call them cyber buccaneers. And some cyber attack firms are self-aligning <clears throat> with government nation states. I call them cyber militia. To the small market player who suffered a loss, he doesn't care if it's a cyber buccaneer or cyber militia. Or for Putin himself hitting, hitting the space bar. Right? Yes, <laughs> doesn't matter. Doesn't care. He's got a million dollar loss. <clears throat> the the burden is on the carrier to sort of establish that it is an act of war or nation state. All they have to do is point to some kind of <clears throat> release by DHS or I'm sorry, DNI or CISA to say, see, this, this is an act of war or nation state. Now the smaller market player, <clears throat> not only does he have to pay a law firm a fee that's pretty close to like the, the amount of the damages because okay. the law firm knows they're in for a long haul. <clears throat> he has to hire a cyber forensic firm. So now he's going to be with a retainer. He's going to be shelling out pretty closely the amount of his loss. And he's signing on for five years of litigation. And in keeping with that, for those people who may be entering this market, <laughs> they they I think they deserve to have a finer <clears throat> appreciation of the taxpayer-funded entities, which are going to help them in their hour of need. You just mentioned DHS. DNI and CISA. Perhaps you could tell us briefly 
who those august ever helpful organizations are so the idea is that the federal government had at least speaks the idea that there would be one central body funded by the federal government that would be if you will the central repository of information in and information out on cyber security in the in the country Sadly, that is still balkanized, and, and there are a handful of federal agencies that also are claiming that they are at the forefront of information and information out. But DNI um, is, is meant to be something of the mothership, and it has designated this new, not so new anymore, office called CISA. I, have, I, I don't remember what the, the words are for the acronym I'm so used to saying. CISA. Cyber Intelligence Security something or other agency, the you know, Director of National Intelligence, right? So they're all uh, fist fighting over this space um, and left left out of it. Which, well, you may be, I, may be, I may be jumping your topic, but I'm, I'm going to leap in because I worked on a bunch of these public-private commissions um, with a bunch of very dedicated staff. I mean, the, the, my, my caveat to this, despite my... Um, the mockery I spread around, you know, widely and well deservedly. Some of that sprays right back at us too. Like, there's this is a very complex problem. You've got rich, rich <laughs> countries with very talented people doing nothing but trying to hack your iPhone all day long. So it's not like this is easy. This is not easy. I don't mean to provide that impression whatsoever. Uh, I just err on the side of keeping your information off the internet is the best thing you can do because it's so complicated, right? Um, but the biggest study that came up, and this this is kind of that culture of DC versus the world, is when I was deep involved in that, you know, with the, the two former White Houses, with you know folks legislation on the Hill, with the agencies in DC working on this, and the, I, and I said to all of them, right, the, a lot of enforcement agencies, mentioned some of them there, and uh, two people that, that were in Congress. So well, you've got to tell the Federal Trade Commission to stop busting my chops when I get hacked. Yes. Said, what do you mean? I said, you're sitting here telling me you want me to voluntarily call you and tell you when I've been hacked so you can help me. Right, we'll see what that happens or not. But whether or not you can help me, right? You may not be able to help me. What is for damn sure is nine months later, the FTC is going to come find me because I've been hacked. So why would I come tell you, the federal government, that I have been attacked by someone when you literally have made a law? That is, in effect, victim shaming. You have created a law that says if someone does something bad to my systems, it's I'm somehow liable for it. And they looked at me, never forget this, Congresswoman, you just pick which side of the aisle this person was on, said, but if we don't have penalties, why would they do the right thing? I said, thank you for summing up the problem with Washington. Your assumption that people who built the company or run a company, really want their customers to get screwed, is nuts. Like, I don't want bad things to happen to my company. When they do, it'd be great if the organizations that my tax dollars support would help me get some redress, but instead you're going to fine me for having been attacked. And that those rules are still there. So you've got this bizarre thing in the federal government of them saying, come, tell me, I want to help. And then later you get a bill for the help in the form of a fine because you failed to secure your systems. Do you, uh, how do your, 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 your clients, have they encountered that and torn their hair out and had, you know, embolisms? <laughs> you know, I, my best answer to that is, is that I, I scare clients with this and explain that proactive cyber hygiene is the best way 
pursuing best practices to try to avoid this mess. But since we're having fun, <laughs> we, 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 we can't leave out the U.S. Treasury directives on sanctions for payment of ransomware. Yes, no, let's not. Please dive in. That's a fun one. So the uh, U.S. Treasury issued a written directive September or October of 2021, and they effectively said, we have a list of bad people. If you pay or facilitate payment of ransom to one of the bad people, we reserve the right to go after you for sanctions. Okay, so that's clever. So is the list of bad people starting with the Republican Party? <laughs> so I, I had to. I had to. I had to. Sorry. I would, I would throw my comment. <laughs> I, had, I had told myself I was not going to mention Republican Party or Biden during this, and now see what you put in It's really in hard. It's his administration. I mean, come on. You got to take – look, in his mind, he's taking credit for the great thing he did. Why would you want to hide it? You wouldn't do it if you didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> for the sake of your audience, I think it's important for everyone to realize that, that on most any political question, you and I have check marks on a different side of the column. Let's just leave it at there. It's, oh, we we found common ground. The Venn diagram has blobs and blurbs. They bleed into each other. Look at that. Unexpected comedy in the public sphere. Look at that. Look at that. There's hope yet for the nation. <laughs> Go on. Anyway, the unnamed administration, because we won't have the date, but they, the Treasury put forward a, a directive about something without a date attached to it. <laughs> so in, in the course of suffering a cyber event, which, as you know, is a very fast-moving event, decisions had to be made <clears throat> at the same oh, level yeah, real time. as in a hockey, an NHL playoff game, um, you you're supposed to review the list. And for the sake of your listeners, I did some empirical uh, checking today. The list um, is 1,934 pages long, and each page has 16 to 20 <laughs> names on it. <laughs> and how many different <laughs> alphabets? Is it also in Cyrillic and Greek? And <laughs> but what don't worry, spellings. Oh, that's great. But but there is a redeeming factor here because the list, uh, the website wouldn't lie to me. The list is searchable. No, wait, don't shh. Don't <laughs> tell them. They'll make it hard copy. They'll put it in PDF. <laughs> now, if I were an enterprising <clears throat> Kevin Smith, Cheetah, Cheetos eating entrepreneur in Chechnya, yep. why would I use the same name today as I did that, that represents me that's on the list? Now you're no alleging that criminals lie? This is just one slap in the face with a cold fish after another. <laughs> there are no restrictions on the use of name. If I want to call myself <laughs> Messina Attack, there's no IP rights. There's no recourse you have against me. I can call myself anything. So I'm not going to use the same name that's on the 1934-page list. But they spend so much taxpayer money making the list, it seems a shame not to use it. I'll send it to you. It's very impressive. Please don't. <laughs> Just my receipt of it will put me on the list. I'm already there. I'm under Republican Party. <laughs> Is that really page one through 900 and the others are like, you know, Eddie's takeout in Beijing? Oh, no. It's alphabetical. So, alphabetical. like, it's... <laughs> ah, so it starts at R. That's, that's really excellent. Ah, that is absolutely magical. That is so silly. Um, it's you know what's so great about that is all cybersecurity companies moved away from whitelist blacklist although that's insensitive um, uh, list of pallor list of color 
they they had those two for a while. <laughs> it didn't work. So in, in essence, the Treasury, within a year, a year from just from this point, a year ago, issued a whitelist blacklist checklist. When what you really need is sort of a, a Bayesian inference engine to determine whether something is a so uh, there are a million tools to try to figure out who someone really is. Their name is the least valuable one. That's great. That's yeah. awesome. So if I pay ransomware in real time because the number keeps ticking up, right? It's locked. It's like if you give me six Bitcoin now, I'll send you the code. You wait an hour, it's 40 Bitcoin. And you're like, shit, pay it. <laughs> pay it. So <clears throat> so you say, so what happens? And I say, well, um, let's have uh, a long meeting and I'm going to review the <clears throat> multiple factors that the DOJ will take into account as to whether assess. A penalty against you that could be as much as a million dollars. It it would take me, <clears throat> I don't know, oh. probably ninety minutes to properly explain all these factors, which 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 means it's 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 just no avail whatsoever. So businesses should should basically think of the premiums they pay for cyber insurance as a one way slot of cash that shot out the door this year. It's an operating <laughs> it's an operating loss factor, and move on because if you try to enforce it get a claim for it, or do anything else. It's just going to cost you more money. So back up your data so no one can force you to pay Bitcoin because on top of paying the Bitcoin, the FTC and the Treasury are going to come <clears> after <throat> you to penalize you for unlocking your systems. All right, well, there's always the option <clears throat> of hiring your Aunt B, who used to be a librarian under the old system, and you index all your records with with, with cards. Sure. In, in a black multi-role cabinet you betcha and there are lots of those still available they're all in all sorts of antique shops you know you know hipsters buy them now to like keep their weeds so you could you could you know beat them out in the market for uh storage units are inexpensive it's probably less to rent storage units with library index cards for all your data than it is to pay the insurance premium there you go and you get somewhere quiet for aunt b to go she's been bored sitting at home with her corgis <laughs> I think of corgis because God, God save the queen. But uh, wow, so that's really great. The in terms of you know, would would you call this a rationally economic, smoothly functioning market? You know, I, I'm going to give you a mixed answer. I am a lawyer, after all, and and the mixed answer is <clears throat> I I see a transition from. Uh, the usual approach of the citizen-state contract, which is that I hire you to be a police officer and I absolve myself of, of almost any responsibility. It's all on your shoulders. <clears throat> Things are different now. I say, now I hire you to be uh, a police officer and you say, well, if I'm going to be a police officer, here's your shared responsibility. And if you don't fulfill your shared responsibility, Bruce, I don't have to come to your house if there's a B&E. And that, in, in many ways, is what's going on between carriers <clears throat> requiring larger market players to vouch for the resiliency of their vendors and sub-vendors. So now you've developed a collective responsibility, a shared responsibility. I think it's begrudging, but but I see it as having some efficiency in the market. Huh. Well, actually, that, that would play really well here in the South, because the best part about when I moved from New York to America was the fact that... <laughs> The, the number, every store I know, every store 
It's not, you know, everyone's got the little Visa MasterCard thing, right? All that crap. The, everyone's got this beautiful transparent sticker that goes to the glass door, except for like the vegan burrito place, but whatever. Aside from them, it's got a picture of a 45 and it says, we don't call the police. So that right there is kind of the similar idea of it's a deductible. You can think of the, the money I spend on 45 hollow points as a store owner, my deductible against the police department having to come to clean up the mess without actually stopping the criminal. You know, it, it probably earns you, yes, it probably earns you <clears throat> a reduced premium because, yes, it, it's, it's, you reduce their workload. My, my favorite moment, I love where I live. I, I love the last free state in America. Uh, the county just north of me. So I said this, and I had it as a discussion point with some of my old friends from New York who still tolerate me oddly. And it was, it was a, a video. <laughs> so the week prior, a couple of messed up morons tried to break into someone's house in Florida, which, so far as I can tell, is, is a one-way suicide mission. Like, that's the dumbest idea ever to break into a home in Florida. Like, you've got to be stoned and crazy or have a death wish because it always ends the same. Because the homeowner tends to be better armed, better trained, and is defending his family and blows you away. Which this and guy he knows, and he knows the layout of the land. Blows the layout of the place, like blew these two scumbags away. You know, it was gonna be a bummer cleaning up, but took care of the problem, defended his family. A plus. The the Volusia County Sheriff has a press release the next day. And this is where I was, I, I, I was kind of watching it with some friends because they're all expecting him to give some ridiculous discussion about not taking the law to your hands. He's like, good for this fine American and this excellent homeowner, ridding us of two scumbags that we don't have to feed in the prison system. I urge all Floridians in my county to get armed, get trained, and defend yourself because the world's full of evil people. And I'm just roaring with laughter. And my friends in New York are like, that's just crazy. That's just awful. I'm like, they were breaking into his home where his children were. What do you mean that's crazy? You, what are you talking about? But there is a deed there, comparable to cyber insurance. They breached his firewall and he didn't require cyber insurance. Yes, a proactive policy. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't, we didn't get to talk about quantum computers. We're going to have to continue this discussion to talk. That about just means it. everyone has to air gap everything because there's no more security <laughs> once quantum encryption uh, works. Because well, there's no more asymmetric. You can go back to symmetric, which has also many flaws. It has no sure. utility. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, I'd love to hear what you you say to to your clients about this because um, on one very uh, boozy night in England, uh, talking with a a a, a quantum researcher uh, at uh, Cambridge who works in a lot of kind of national security sort of problems, and we were talking about capital markets, and he was kind of wondering, having built exchanges and how they work and the rest of it. We realized that the greatest thing ever is we just need to build a quantum entangled exchange, and which is possible, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but but he said he said how are you going to explain it to the regulators? I said well that's going to be the fun part because we're going to walk in and say here's this new model of an exchange. It's quantum entangled driven for price discovery. The risk is infinite, but it's going to be fine. <laughs> and as long as you understand, <clears throat> when you meet with the regulators, you'll say it's just all quantum mechanics. It's it, it, that's it. Yeah, and you know how that goes, right, guys? They're going to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I know. Yeah. No. Yeah. I had a cat in the box once. Excuse me. <laughs> Two bits of spooky, spooky action at a distance. There. That's all you have to know. Right. 
It can be yes or no at the same time. It's called ambiguity, counselor. So what do you tell <laughs> what do you tell your, your clients about the impending destruction of everything they're working for? By I tell them um, ducks. don't go buy, don't go buy the quantum um, proof encryption of the day that you just saw on the internet yesterday. <laughs> Stratify your data and decide what you have to keep the most valuable. Stay tuned and and be able to start to implement policies so that as much as you can be, you can be nimble, assuming the best, that NIST comes out with, with what seemed to be quantum-proof encryption prior to the time that China operationalizes quantum computers and unravels all of your encrypted data. That's a big hope. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's, that's almost up there in religious conviction. You tell them to, to sacrifice a, a black duck at the crossroads at midnight, too? Well, they're hoping for that to happen? <laughs> I mean, I hate to be pessimistic, but... <laughs> oh, it's, it, it is... I, it is... There's cause for pessimism. In fact, uh, the my limited empirical research is the farthest out prediction for quantum computers to be operational was eight years, which is not really that far away if you think about corporate culture. No, and given time travel, they could have already come back and done it. <laughs> well, they already have to because all time is one. It's already been done. Right? It's already been done. So, huh? That's that's really good. Well, huh? God, that's going to really screw with actuarial models. It, it is hardcore, huh? Well, so what do we what do we leave the listeners with? The fact that um, you've been hacked. Don't worry about it. Cyber insurance is just a taxing your business because it'll never pay out. What else? What are one of the other? That's my editorializing, not yours, of course. Pay for coverage and pursue best practices because that's that's the best your lawyer is going to do for you in court. Awesome, and that includes the shock collars. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Bankman taught me everything I need to know about human motivation. He sure did. He absolutely did. The man, who was a genius. Remember, the next time. Someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Absolutely perfect. With that, I would like to thank my guest, Bruce, for coming on, um, explaining to us the intricacies of uh, and hilarity, clearly, of the cyber insurance market uh, for small and medium enterprises. Uh, is, are, there, are there any kind of final words? Uh, except I, <clears throat> I enjoyed this, and I look forward to our next conversation. We'll we'll dive into something else that's compelling and and dynamic. Amen. And I will close as we always do, admonishing my listeners that for their own men their own mental hygiene and emotional well being, being that they turn off the mainstream media because they are lying to you and tune into messy times. <laughs> Until next time, ciao. Thank you. Learn what Bitcoin is, how it works, and why it matters. Bitcoin 101, your ultimate guide to the fundamentals of blockchain.